This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. A people living in darkness, living in the land of the shadow of death. Is this you? Where is God in the silence? Where is God in the darkness? Could it be that your pain your grief, all the world's suffering, all the world's darkness is the genesis of new life. For out of the darkness, when there was only emptiness, God spoke forth light. From the darkness of a mother's womb, all the questions, all the expectation, God formed a child. And from the darkness of that silent night, when it seemed the voice of God was unheard, when it seemed the hand of God was unseen, that silence was broken by the cries of a baby, a son, a savior. Open your Bibles, if you would, to John's Gospel, chapter 1. While you're turning there, some of you saw this announcement, but uh, we had set a goal this year to hit 500 Operation Christmas Child boxes, and um, we beat that. We beat that. 576, I think, was the final count. Five hundred seventy-six gifts to kids. More importantly, five hundred seventy-six pairs of ears that'll hear the gospel this year. And I'm grateful to God for you and uh, your desire to see that happen. It's something certainly we can rejoice in. Uh, Today we begin a brief three-part series that seeks to answer a simple question: Why did Jesus come? Why did He come? Christmas is the time of year that we celebrate the arrival of the Savior. But what were the motivations for God to send his son into the world? Why did he do it? You might be surprised to discover that the Bible outlines numerous reasons for this. Uh, I've been working through a, a little devotional by Joel Beakey, 31 Meditations of the Incarnation, Why Christ Came. Here's some of the reasons, and he unpacks this from the scriptures. Why did Jesus come? To do the will of the Father, to save sinners, to be made like his people, to bear witness to the truth, to destroy the devil and his works, to give eternal life, to receive worship, to demonstrate true humility, to preach the gospel, to bring judgment, to give his life as a ransom for many, to fulfill the law and prophets, to reveal God's love for sinners, to call sinners to repentance, to die, to seek and save the lost, to serve, to bring peace, to bring a sword. To give us the spirit of adoption, to make us partners of the divine nature, to reign as king, to restore human nature to holiness, to be a merciful and faithful high priest. And it goes on and on and on. Suddenly, well, Christmas is more than Jesus coming just to save. He comes to do much more than that. 
Today we're going to look at John chapter 1. We're going to look at first nine verses that contain the theme of light. Jesus came to bring light, to be light and to bring light. You know, one of the most festive elements of the Christmas season are the lights. When I was in middle school, um, after our Christmas Eve service was over, our family would hop in the car and we would drive to a neighborhood that was a hop, skip and a jump away from our church. And we would drive through the neighborhood and look at all the Christmas lights. You know, it was one of those neighborhoods that had cheerfully conspired together You know what I mean, right? To put all the lights up. Yeah, they were the ones working on it in August. And, uh, and they had the, the uh, what do they call them, the firelitas in New Mexico, the little uh, luminarias on the bags, the candles in the bags. They'd line the streets with these. And it was fun. It was a great time. Now, as a kid, I was a little torn because presents were waiting at home. And we were only delaying that. But this was a beautiful thing to see. I have fond memories of that. One of the broadcast channels uh, has made a killing uh, with an entire TV show about Christmas lights. The, the, the great Christmas light fight is what it's, what it's called. And it's really impressive how far people will go to put these things up. And, and really, it is spectacular. It is. We're drawn to this. We're drawn to it. And there is, there's much to be gleaned from it when considering the Christmas story because light surrounds the birth of Christ. The shepherds were watching their flock when an angel appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them at night. A couple years later, the inquisitive magi follow a star to the place where Jesus was in order to worship him. The Apostle John picks up on this theme of the relationship between the arrival of Jesus and light. Let's look at it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to to bear witness about the light. All that might be believed through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus is the light. The true light of Christmas. And this obviously isn't just even primarily about a description of what Jesus looks like or how he appears to the human eye. No, it's a metaphor laced with helpful truths. For the Christmas story to unfold this way, for Jesus to be described this way, teaches us several truths about why Jesus came And why it's good tidings for Jesus to come as light. We'll look at three things. Jesus came to us as light to illuminate, to generate life, and to mesmerize. To illuminate, to generate life, and to mesmerize. First, to illuminate. In the Bible, darkness refers to both ignorance and evil. Both ignorance, darkness in the Bible, ignorance and evil. Proverbs 4.19 is one that 
encapsulates both. The way of the wicked, evil, is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Evil and darkness is packing both together. So one of the reasons Jesus came to earth is to illuminate our ignorance and our evil. See, light reveals the truth of things. Light shows you how things really are. Jesus came to show you how things really are. You will never know how things really are without him. When I was a kid, I was prone to getting strep throat. And what do your parents do? Huh? Grab the flashlight. You remember this? Grab the flashlight, open up, say ah. What are you looking for? Looking for those signature white spots, the back of the throat. How do we ever survive? They're using light to see the reality down there, right? Seeing light, how things really are. They didn't know how things really were. They were using light to get to the bottom of how things really are. Jesus came to show us how things really are and more specifically how bad things really are. How bad off we really are. Peter experienced this. One of Peter's many experiences of coming to see how things really are occurred after this miraculous catch of fish. You know, they brought the other boat over because the one boat couldn't handle They're both sinking. What does he do? What does Peter do after this? He falls on his knees before Jesus and he says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Jesus is shining light into Peter's life. Peter's proximity to Jesus is allowing him to see himself as he really is. Jesus is light. He's showing us how things really are. Without light, you don't see the reality of things. If you don't have enough light in your life, you won't know how bad off you really are. If you don't have enough light in your life, you won't know just how heinous sin really is. You know, preachers get dinged every once in a while from, from listeners over something they've said about this or that topic. And some of those are justified. Some of those are not. One of those I've been dinged over in the last 17 years of preaching is the topic of sin. Comments like, well, you talk, you talk too much about sin. You make people feel bad when you talk about sin. Stop it. Well, criticism is opportunity for reflection. And so... I go back and I review my manuscripts and I generally don't agree with those who chide preachers for talking too much about sin unless, of course, Jesus and the cross are missing. Then it's a problem. But what this tells me is that those who don't like hearing about sin don't have enough light in their lives. They don't have enough Jesus in their lives because they're not seeing the reality of things. They're not seeing how bad things really are. During those same boyhood years, I lived in Walker, Minnesota, which was a town of about 900 in the uh, forest and lake country of northern Minnesota. Some people have asked me, what's the latest uh, you ever had a snowstorm? And my answer is the first week in May, we had a blizzard. We had to dig ourselves out of our front door. Uh, the, the church that my dad pastored there uh, most folks didn't, I mean, 900, most folks didn't live in lighted neighborhoods. They don't live on the streets. They live out in the forest. So, you know, on occasion we get invited over to, uh, to somebody's house for dinner and, uh, you know, the, the instructions on how to get there were, you know, very interesting. It, it's good for a while. Take a left on Highway C 
And then uh, you're going to go about a quarter mile. You're going to take the third dirt road on your right. And then you just follow that until you see our porch lights. About two miles. This is what it was like. This is rural America. Well, driving through that without headlights would yield catastrophe. Because you don't have enough light. You don't have enough light. You don't have enough truth to steer the car properly. The fact that light plays such a central role in the Christmas story is God making a statement to us. You don't have enough truth to steer the car properly. You're going to crash unless I give you light. In the same Christmas story where Jesus plays a leading role as light, he's announced as Savior. Savior. So how bad is it? What's the reality of things? What's the truth of the matter? He's announced as Savior. How bad is it? If Jesus is light, and as light he's Savior, the statement is, things are bad, folks. Things are bad. You you can't save yourselves. Your true condition is worse than you think. I need to shine a light so you can see how bad things really are. See, those who see Jesus as merely a great thinker or a great teacher or moral example don't have enough light to see the truth of things. They're driving their car with their headlights off. Jesus is Savior. What does that tell us? What does that light tell us? We need saving. Now, there's an ongoing application here for the believer, too. Every day we face the threat of making bad decisions, to use our time wisely or poorly, to spend our money wisely or poorly, to use our mental energy, thinking about something substantive or trivial. One of the reasons for bad decision-making in the Christian is operating in the dark without enough light. Do you have enough light in your life to make wise decisions? Do you have enough Jesus in your life to make wise decisions? Think about how impossible life would be without light. Think about the impossibility of making good decisions without light. My wife and I honeymooned in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Tennessee. And and while we were there, we took one of those cave tours, which I've taken several cave tours since then. I realized this is a staple part of a cave tour. They take you down to the deepest, lowest part, cut off from all natural light. There isn't a shred of it that gets down there. Of course, they've got the light bulbs up, you know, things hold things wired. And they say, hey, anybody want to experience absolute darkness? And yeah, of course, you know, hey, we've got a concrete path down here, you know, no problem. And they turn it off, you know, experience absolute darkness. And so we did this on our, on our honeymoon. You know, it, you think about that, darkness. It would be one thing to walk through a, a flat field with no obstacles whatsoever for miles around in absolute darkness. Eh, you know, not pleasant, but uh, all, all in all, not really a threat. 
but I have never found a perfectly flat field with no hurdles or obstacles to be a great metaphor for life. Maybe that's your life. That's not my life. Now, life is really like walking through caves. You know, we were on this, this tour, and the guide at, at times would come around a bend and say, now watch your head, because <laughs> there's a low-hanging rock wall. That's kind of in our path, and you have to duck a little bit. With no light, self-inflicted wounds all over the place. All over the place. Do you have enough light in your life to navigate the complexities of life in a world like ours? Where it's not like walking through an open field. It's a cave tour. (laughs) There's low-hanging rock walls that come unexpectedly. Do you have enough light in your life to navigate wisely? Let me be a little more specific with this. Do you have enough Jesus in your life? Have you read and studied the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The books that contain the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Have those four books been stitched to your heart and mind? Have they been stitched to your heart and mind? Do you have enough light? You sure you have enough light in your life? Jesus came to illuminate how bad we are, how things really are. Now think about what good news that is. Think about meandering through a mountain forest, miles from any civilization, no flashlight. Jesus is light. He could stay at a distance and watch us grope about in darkness. But he comes to us. That's good news. There may be aspects to the illumination that we take in with our eyes that are unpleasant to us, but it's still good news. He has come as light to put an end to our groping about in darkness. What an incredible gift. Second, Jesus, as the light of the world, came to generate life. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Notice how these two are intertwined, life and light. You know, if our sun went out, we would all die. The sun is the source of all life. There's only one ultimate reason you're alive today. There's only one ultimate reason you're sitting here and you're alive today. God as light has given you and is sustaining your life as you speak, as we speak. God is the sole source of light. This is, this is the fundamental reason why you are alive right now, breathing, sitting up, listening, participating in this service. That's the fundamental reason. Is that God in this moment has chosen to give you life, to sustain your life. Now, Somebody's going to say, well, you know, my heart's beating, my lungs are breathing, the brain's doing its stuff. I mean, isn't that the reason why? Isn't that the reason why? Well, imagine a young boy, age four, bright blue eyes. One day his father asks him, son, where did you get your beautiful blue eyes? And he responds with confidence, God. Now he's 21. He's a biology major. How does he answer the same question? Well, you know, even 
Though you and mom don't have blue eyes, you must have the necessary recessive genes that happily combine to give me my blue eyes. Which answer is true? No, they both are. Which answer is more fundamental? God did. Yeah, so on one level you can say, well, I'm alive right now, my heart is beating, my lungs are functioning, my nervous system's working properly, that's why I'm here, that's why I'm alive, that's why... Yes, 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 okay. The more fundamental answer is that God, who is light, is sustaining you. Light means life. But the biblical writers also use light to talk about spiritual life, not just biological life, spiritual life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is writing, he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying we have a spiritual enemy, the God of this world, Satan, who has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. The gospel is light. Look at how Paul describes the process of becoming a Christian. For God said, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So someone walking in darkness needs what? Light. You have friends, you've got family members, you've got co-workers, you've got neighbors who walk in darkness. The God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. This is how it works. Now, that doesn't mean they don't need the light of the gospel. It means they're able to see the light of the gospel. And the answer to that is not to remove the light you're attempting to shine into their lives. The answer is what they need is for God to shine in their hearts so they can see the light of the gospel. You are shining in their lives. You know, sometimes we quit shining the light of the gospel into their lives because we think, well, it's just not working. That's not the issue. The problem is not with the light you're shining into their lives. That's not the issue. The problem is with the seeing, which you can't do anything about. Paul is just saying, it is God who caused this to happen. God is the one who shines the light into the life of the believer to let them see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Keep the light of Jesus close to those who are blind. If Jesus is light and light is life, the last thing in the world you want to do is remove from those folks the one who is light and can allow them to be freed from groping about in darkness. Now, there's also an application, I think, here for the life of the believer in this metaphor of light bringing life, generating life. You know, study after study has demonstrably shown the connection between a lack of sunshine with melancholy. You know, it could be a challenging time of the year for some of us in this part of the world for that. This information, of course, is not new. 
Uh, the Puritans, those great doctors of the soul, had a very sophisticated approach to, to uh, treating melancholy. And one of the many, many, many recommendations they gave to those in their churches suffering from it was to get outside during the day, going for walks through nature. Nature, in their view, was a, an aspect, a component of mental health. God has wired into us a physiological law that serves a spiritual purpose. There is no life without light. There is no mental and emotional vitality without physical light. Nor is there mental or emotional vitality without the light of Christ. So you will not thrive emotionally, mentally, by staying at a distance from Jesus. You won't do it. You cannot thrive emotionally or mentally by staying at a distance from Jesus. Jesus is light and light is life. Third and finally, Jesus came as light to mesmerize. Picture being in a crowd while people standing in absolute darkness. So you're on the cave tour with me. And they let you stand in darkness for a while and then the light turns on. What happens? All eyes go to it. Right? All eyes go to it. Don't you know, Christian, that you were made for that? You were made to find Jesus to be totally and completely enthralling. We were not made to be the light. Human beings possess no light of their own. Our light is derived. Our light is derived from Jesus. Jesus' light is original. And I think the primary reason the Christmas stories in the Bible all have this light theme is this. Jesus came to reclaim his rightful place in the hearts, minds, and imaginations of his creatures. Jesus came as light in darkness as a way to regain our focus. All eyes are meant to be on him. All attention is meant to be glued to him. And the result of this is meant to be a big wow. Just like the first time this massive Christmas light display is turned on, those watching respond with ooh and ah and wow. Yes, that's it. Jesus came as light at first Christmas to be the object of your ooing and your awing. Because that's the proper way the universe is supposed to work. Might it be the root cause of all of our problems is that we have awe problems. We have misplaced awe problems. Might it be that our adversary, that roaring lion, the devil, is working round the clock to create misplaced awe in your life? To make someone or something other than Jesus the object of your awe. You know, the play he ran in the Garden of Eden is the same play he runs with you. Adam and Eve had it all. Every need was supplied. There was no sin, sickness, or suffering of any kind. God was in his rightful place and willingly descended to earth to enjoy the perfect communion he had with the people that he had made. It was paradise. But that paradise was shattered like fine china dropped on concrete. 
Adam and Eve were discontented with everything. They wanted more. And at the bottom of their insane quest for more was misplaced awe. The serpent held out to them the one thing they didn't have, shouldn't have, and could never have. And that's God's position. This this dangerous fantasy lurks in the heart of every sinner. We want that. We want God-like recognition and God-like control and God-like power and God-like centrality. This scene in Eden was the initial moment when awe of self overrode awe of God and set the agenda for every person's thoughts, desires, choices, and behavior. Awe of self now drives every selfish, antisocial, and immoral thing we do. When awe of self overrides awe of Christ, it sets in motion a chain reaction of devastating consequences. You become obsessed with your own happiness. All of your language shifts. I deserve, I have a right to. Paul Tripp puts it this way. He says, because we do not functionally connect our lives, meaning, hopes, joy, identity, and satisfaction to the awesome glory of God, we look to other people to do for us what they have no ability to do. We want our children to give us identity. We ask our spouse to be our personal savior. We want our friends to make us feel good about ourselves and our bosses to give us a reason to get up in the morning. Because awe of Christ is not filling our hearts, we put people where he should be. Christian, listen, you were made to be contented, mesmerized, transfixed, and enamored with, not beholding a great self, but beholding a great wonder outside yourself. Do you go to the Grand Canyon to admire yourself? When I go to the beach, why is it everybody is facing the ocean, except those goofy tanning people? Why is it everybody is facing the ocean? No, you... (laughs) We want to behold a great wonder outside ourselves. That's why we seek these things out. You were made to behold a great wonder outside yourself. You were not not made to behold a great self. (laughs) You were made to behold a great wonder outside yourself. A beach, the Grand Canyon, those are just pointers to the splendor of Jesus. To show you your purpose in the world. Jesus came in darkest night as light to recapture your awe. Does he have it? You know, we, if not, we can be tempted to think a self-improvement plan will do the job. Now, certainly there are things that we can do to create the conditions needed for our awe of Christ to reignite. But this is as much, if not more, a work of God. So I want to lead us in a time of confession and prayer. I want to ask you some questions. I want you to take these things to the Lord in prayer. Let's do that now. Let's pray. First, if you sense your life has been reduced to your wants, needs, feelings, Confess that to God. This is the awe of self in motion. When we have no higher purpose than an obsession with our own happiness, our hearts atrophy, and we deprive our souls of the nutrients they need. Listen, your soul was was never wired 
was never wired to find its health in a relentless pursuit of happiness. Happiness is a byproduct. True happiness is a byproduct of a relentless pursuit of Jesus Christ. So ask the Lord to show you where awe of self sits on the throne of your heart. Let's do that now. your awe of Christ has been stifled to mere embers tell him that admit that to him ask him to shine in your heart the mesmerizing brilliance of his light ask the Lord to energize your heart with an obsession with Jesus this Christmas season let's do that now pray that you would give our hearts and our minds the spark to spend to send spiritual glances in Jesus' direction constantly while we're cooking a meal while we're doing the laundry while we're working on that project while we're taking a drive while we're out playing while we're out clearing snow God that you would spark in our hearts and minds to send glances to Jesus in these micro moments to find ourselves mesmerized by him in some of the final words of the Bible we read at night will be no more They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. Oh God, give us a taste of this now. Shine the radiant brilliance of the glory of Christ among us now. And in the days to come, that we may find ourselves staggered by his incomparable magnificence. We pray these things so the name of Christ may be exalted and magnified. Amen.